In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Galatians. Last time um, we covered um, a basic understanding of the book, who the Galatians are, why St. Paul was writing to them, and we covered chapter 1. Um, what was kind of the main principle behind the book, if anyone was here um, can remember? Why was St. Paul writing to the Galatians? Because they were influenced by the Judaizers. Okay, and who are the Judaizers? They believe that the Gentiles, in order to become Christians, they need to be Jews. Yes, so, so the Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians that believed that in order for someone to be a follower of Christ or Christian, that they had to um, follow the commands of Christ, like all the New Testament um, uh, commands and everything that the Lord said. And... But they, in addition to that, they also had to practice um, many of the elements of the Jewish faith from the Old Testament, including circumcision and the keeping of certain uh, feast days according to the Old Testament commands and so on. And so the, the Galatians, this was uh, the Galatian churches, this was a, a region in Asia Minor or Turkey um, that St. Paul had established churches there. And the Judaizers had a big influence on them uh, to, to kind of convince them that they need to focus on this idea of circumcision and following the laws of Moses and so on. And so St. Paul is writing to them to emphasize that this is false. This is a false message, a false gospel, and essentially telling them that if anyone comes to you and tells you something contrary to what I've already preached to you, then this person is accursed and not to believe them. Um, and the emphasis of the whole epistle is about the liberty that we have in Christ. And here speaking about liberty, the idea that we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law and that all of these things in the Old Testament, what they were, were symbols of things that were to be fulfilled and fully realized in the New Testament. So as we said, circumcision was a symbol in the Old Testament. For those to who, who consent to be circumcised, it was like a symbol that they were submitting to God and they were among the people of God. Whereas in the New Testament, this was fulfilled through the sacrament of baptism. Okay, So um, this is the kind of the background of why St. Paul is writing this epistle to them. And a big part of the argument that the Judaizers had trying to convince the Galatians is they were trying to undermine the authority of St. Paul himself and saying he was he is not an authentic apostle. And they said about him that, you know, he, he was not um, with the Lord when the Lord was on the earth um, traveling with him or, 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 or being sent out by him because we know, of course, St. Paul's conversion happened after the resurrection. Right. So they were trying to undermine his, apos his, uh, his apostleship and his authority, essentially saying, um, uh, that that what he is teaching the idea that circumcision is not necessary for salvation and preaching against circumcision is something that is false and um, this set up kind of a big controversy in the early church between um, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians because of course the Jewish Christians um, having come from Judaism for them following the law the circumcision all these things was second nature because they were already practicing this they're already used to this so the idea that they would just kind of take this practice and 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 bring it into christianity for them it wasn't such a big deal because they already practiced this but for the gentiles for them to uh to, to accept 
that in order for me to be Christian and to have salvation, that I have to be circumcised when this is a practice that maybe they had never practiced and they were not familiar with and they found it to be, you know, unacceptable to them, that this would be an obstacle, right? This would be a stumbling block for them in order to come to the faith. And that's why St. Paul fought against the idea of circumcision so much. Not because circumcision was bad and, uh, and there were people actually who consented to be circumcised. St. Paul himself, who was a Jew, was circumcised. Some of the others, also apostles and other people who served with St. Paul, were circumcised. The issue had not to do with the fact of whether circumcision is good or bad. The idea is that they were placing an extra requirement for salvation, and this extra requirement is what made it wrong, right? And we can think about the same principles today. Like, let's say you have um, some cultural practice, right, that is, that is practiced in a specific culture, and then um, in order for another group of people to become Christian, they tell them, well, you also have to practice this cultural practice that we, that we practice, right? And so this is... This is kind of the, the, the parallel. The, the Judaizers were a very influential group in the early church and set up a big um, controversy about this. Even the apostles themselves, as we will see, um, some of them were confused by this whole principle and, and needed, to be, you know, needed to be corrected. So we will um, start with chapter 2. Um, here, St. Paul is continuing to defend his apost apostolic authority. And, in, and he does so by describing the times that he went to meet with the apostles themselves, right? He's saying, I'm not some kind of rogue preacher that is kind of off on my own, doing my own thing with my own message, but I met with the apostles and we all were together as one and we have the same message, although maybe one group of the apostles were focusing more on the Jews and another uh, was focusing on the Gentiles like St. Paul. But we are, we are one, and our authority is apostolic as one is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ um, here. So um, in the previous chapter, in chapter 1, actually, St. Paul already described uh, a meeting where he met with St. Peter and St. James after his conversion. Okay, um, So he's going to continue to say that here. So he says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. Okay, so after 14 years, this is after 17 years of his ministry because he spent, um, he spent a period of time in Arabia, which is the time that he was uh, learning from Christ, as we said, that the Lord Jesus Christ would appear to him and would teach him directly. Like he, he received his instruction directly from Christ in Arabia, and this is why we say that he did not learn about the faith secondhand, like he didn't learn it because the apostles taught him or because other Christians taught him, but just as all the other apostles, he heard the teaching directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and this was like a period of training for him uh, uh, for these three years. Then he says, after another 14 years, okay, this is he went up again to Jerusalem. So he had already gone before. He went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with him. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Okay. So when he says, I went up by revelation, this means that it was through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Like the, like the Holy Spirit was prompting him to go and to meet with the other apostles, to communicate with them, to be of one mind with them, to be all together on the same page with them. And he says what, um, 
to those who were of reputation. What does that mean, to those who were of reputation? He went to speak with, pri privately with, to those who were of reputation. The 12 disciples? So certain people, uh, certain of the leaders, li right? Like certain of those who uh, were the most prominent of the apostles, for instance, right? Those are the ones that he went to speak with, okay? And he wanted them to see the message, the gospel that he preached among the Gentiles. He wanted to communicate that to them so that there would be no misunderstanding or miscommunication, right? Because the Judaizers were actively speaking against St. Paul, and they were saying the message that he's preaching is not the message that the other disciples are teaching. Why? And because the other apostles that were serving in areas which was predominantly Jewish, this was not an issue. Like, th this was not... Like, again, the issue here was not to go and to tell people circumcision is bad, don't be circumcised, you need to immediately stop being circumcised. The point here is that circumcision is insignificant. It's irrelevant. You want to be circumcised, you don't want to be circumcised. It has nothing to do with the faith. This was the message. So for the Jewish areas, was not an issue. The people didn't bring it up as an issue. They, if they were continuing to be circumcised because this is, was their practice, that's what they were used to, there was no stumbling here. It was, it was just, it was fine. Right. So it wasn't an active point of discussion or argument or conversation um, in the Jewish areas because it didn't come up as an issue. Whereas in the Gentile areas, which was, you know, a much larger area in mean St. Paul, you know, he, he traveled all over the world. Right. Establishing churches all over the world. And all these places are Gentile areas. Right. Um, so in all of these places outside of Israel, um, this message of circumcision is not necessary. You don't have to um, observe the, f the feasts of the Jews and all these things. This was the message. So, so it, it became a point of like cultural conflict. And St. Paul, in order to show to the apostles and to the Judaizers and the others that, hey, we are preaching the same message, right? And that we all should be in agreement about it, okay? Um, so St. Paul was coming because he wanted the support of the apostles. Like he wanted them to acknowledge and confirm that his apostleship was true and that the message he is teaching is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Like no individual person, no matter how prominent they are, no matter how famous or popular that they are, should go and to preach a message without the consent of the church, right? Without the consent of the church. And this is something very important because sometimes what will happen is there'll be certain groups of people who want to um, who want to do a good work, right? Like they want to do a good thing. And so they come up with a group and maybe this is a community service group or some other kind of group and they begin to work, okay? But they begin to work kind of independently. They begin to work without really any kind of supervision from the church. And if you look at the work that they do, it's good. Like there's, you don't look at it and say, this is bad or sinful or evil, what these people are doing. Maybe they're doing something good. But because they are doing something separate from the church, they consider themselves to be above or beyond the authority of the church that no one from the church or no, no, none of the clergy, none of the, not, not, none of the authority in the church can kind of have any say about what it is they're doing. And this can cause conflict, right? Because anyone who is doing the work of God should submit to God through the authority that God has given to the church. You know, God is the one who gave the authority to the church to govern Christians, right? To govern 
Christians to govern the salvation of the people and so on. So so if someone is trying to do even something that is good, but, but apart from the authority of the church, it can cause problems. So here's St. Paul, even though he received instruction directly from Christ, even though he had a vision of Christ, even though he heard the voice of Christ, even though he experienced all these miracles and all these things happening to him, he still felt that I cannot just go and to preach this message alone. I have to be part of the church as a whole, right? And so when he goes and meets with the other apostles, he is establishing this relationship and establishing this sense from all of the people that, hey, the message we are preaching is one message. It's not that I'm just preaching my own thing, okay? Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, Okay, so Titus was an apostle. He was one of the disciples of St. Paul. Um, and it says he was not compelled to be circumcised. Okay? Some people say that what this means is that he was circumcised, but he wasn't compelled. He wasn't forced. With the emphasis on the word compelled. Like he wasn't forced to be circumcised. He chose to be circumcised. We know actually that St. Timothy, um, who was another one of the disciples of St. Paul, also a bishop, okay, we know that he also was circumcised. Okay, but he was circumcised because when he would go and preach to the areas that have Jews, because, again, this was like a controversial issue, if he was not circumcised, then they would not even consider him. Like, they would not even consider his authority by any means, and it would just cause an, a stumbling block in his ministry. So he, he chose. He chose to be uh, he, he chose to be circumcised, right? There's, so there's nothing wrong, again, with being circumcised. The idea is that we are making it to be a requirement. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liber liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. What is he talking about? What does this mean? Who are the false brethren? who came in secretly to spy out the liberty which they have in Christ Jesus in order to bring them into bondage. What do you think? Jude Jewish Christians, Judaizers, yes? So the false brethren are, and they're, they're like se doing something secretly, right? So they're like spies. So essentially saying there is, there is some people who um, who went essentially to spy out what St. Paul and his group were preaching while he was among the Gentiles in order to kind of try to catch him doing something wrong, right? They were spies. So, like, you have this group of people who is, like, preaching this message of circumcision is not necessary. So these spies essentially from Jerusalem would come they would see what they were doing so they could report back, hey, this is what St. Paul was doing. So very likely this, these people were with the Judaizers and saying what that they might bring us into bondage. Like this is the, the kind of like we, we mentioned last time how like St. Paul did not take lightly this requirement. Even though the thing that they were being asked to do, which is to be circumcised, is not a sin. It's not wrong. It's not like they were telling them you have to do something that is a sin. Right. It is something just irrelevant to the faith. Right. But yet St. Paul considers it that they are trying to bring us into bondage. Which is the opposite of liberty. 
right? Christ is bringing us liberty. Why liberty? Because through the law, we have no salvation. Through the law, we are unable to be saved because no one can keep the fullness of the law. No one in the Old Testament could keep the law. There was no one who could keep the fullness of the law. And so when St. Paul is speaking about the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law was not to sanctify. The purpose of the law was not to bring salvation. The purpose of the law was not to, to help anyone. The purpose of the law was to make it clear that we are very far away from the standard of God, that we are unable to fulfill the standard of God. That was the purpose of the law. The law did not impute any power to follow the law, right? It's like somebody gives you a whole bunch of rules and say, here are all the rules that you have to follow if you want salvation. So many rules beyond our ability to follow them. So reading the rules and understanding the rules does not give you the ability to follow the rules because it is beyond your ability to follow. Just like in the Old Testament, the law was beyond the ability of the people to follow. So what was the purpose then? The purpose of the law was to make us, the people in the Old Testament, realize that there is no hope for them in themselves. Like there is nothing that they could themselves do in order to have salvation because they could not follow the law. So they would look forward to something or someone who could free them, bring them liberty from the bondage of the law. The law prevented them. The law was kind of like a constant reminder to them all the time that they could not have salvation, right? That they were sinners, that they lived apart from God, that they were not pleasing to God, that they did not do the things that God commanded constantly, all the time. This was what the law was to them. So the liberty that they found in Christ at the time of Christ was that Christ essentially freed them from the requirements of the law. Now, that doesn't mean that Christ is freeing them from, like, the moral law or, or spiritual law. He's saying these specific commands of that was through the law of Moses, like the specific external rituals that they were called to fulfill and obey and observances and dates and, and, and sacrifices and those kinds of things, which brought no salvation, they were now free from those requirements, okay? Because Christ fulfilled all of that in himself. So in order to bring the people back into bondage is essentially saying what? No, Christ did not grant you the liberty. Christ did not free you from the commandments of the law. You must fulfill the whole law, right? And if you don't fulfill the whole law, then again, you are, have no salvation. So we're back to the same problem as before that Christ was supposed to come as the liberator to free us from the commandments of the law, and yet these Judaizers are coming and saying, no, you are still in bondage. So this is why the issue here was more like deeper than just, all right, just be circumcised and be done with it. No, the whole concept of the circumcision and all that was essentially saying you have to do certain actions in order to earn your salvation, without which you could not be saved, and those actions were these external rites that, no one could no one could follow to their to their to the fullness and so that's why nobody was saved nobody had salvation but here christ is the one who liberated us and so saint paul is fighting against this message of bondage which the judaizers are trying to 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 maintain without seeing christ as the liberator in this way right so he's saying what we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue right the message of truth is the message of liberty that comes in christ we did not submit ourselves in any way to these Judaizers, to these people who are coming and presenting 
this um, doctrine. Yes. So, in in saying that the law helped help the Israelites recognize that they were incapable of, uh, of their own salvation, right? Uh, what happens with the church then, with our traditions? Um, we, we derive our traditions from the law, but it our, our traditions reflect that Christ has saved us, right? It's like a, that the law has been fulfilled. That's what we have in the church today. Is that correct? Yes. So we, we believe that Many of those elements and things that were commanded in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ and that they were like something that was pointing to something that was going to be revealed later. Like I mentioned, like circumcision was pointing to baptism. And once baptism was revealed, baptism became a requirement, but it didn't become a requirement because of a, like an external rite or ritual that had to be performed. It was through baptism that we become genuinely the children of God as a sacrament. Right, like the Holy Spirit is working in us, and actually through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we are made capable and able to fulfill the law of Christ. So, for instance, when Christ says, "Love your enemies," right? Well, as human beings, as just natural people apart from the Spirit of God, what power do I have to love my enemy? You know, like we, I struggle to love my enemy. I can't do it. Like that would be an example of a commandment that Christ gave that is impossible for us to fulfill without the grace of God working in us. So through baptism, a sacrament, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we begin to be transformed, that we begin to lead a life of sanctification, so where there can come a time when I feel through the grace of God working in me that I'm able to forgive my enemies, that I'm able to love them, that I'm able to serve people without expecting something in return, essentially all of the Christian kind of commandments, right? So, so on the one sense, um, there is a spiritual fulfillment of the commandment. And on the second sense, the law of Christ gives us the power to fulfill, whereas the law of Moses does not give us any power to fulfill. Okay? Any questions about this point before we continue? Okay. But from those deemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay? So he's saying um, he did not care who brought the message. Okay? He didn't care who brought the message. Actually, in the, in the previous chapter, when he was saying, even if an angel from heaven were to come and to preach to you something contrary to what I preached, the message that you received, uh, let him be accursed and reject the message. Even if it's an angel. Like St. Paul, his focus was not on the reputation, the personhood, the status or the position of the person who was talking, the person who was giving the message, the person who was preaching. He cared about the message. right? And this is something completely lost on us today in our society. 
right? In our society today, what matters is not the message, it's who's delivering the message. If a person of the certain status or position or whatever delivers a message, everybody believes it. Why? Because that person said so, right? That person who is well-respected, idolized, whatever, that person has a lot of influence because when they say it, everybody listens. But you could have the same exact message being being taught by another person who is has no real reputation or anything. They're just like a simple person and they're ignored, right? So one very important thing we kind of get from this is the idea that we should examine the content of the message. And based on the content of the message, we either accept the message or we reject the message. It's not about who delivers the message. You know, if St. Paul goes to the extent and says, if an, even an angel comes and says a different message than what we preached, then you reject that message? I mean, wh what are you going to say? This is an angel, right, coming to say that message, right? And he said even about himself, if I come at a later time and teach you something contrary to what I taught you, then I myself, like, don't even accept it from me. That's how powerful the gospel is. The gospel is the truth. And whatever is contrary to the truth is a lie. Even if it's uttered by an angel, even if it's uttered by a saint, even if it's uttered by whoever, if it's contrary to the truth, then it's false, regardless of who says it. So here he's saying what, um, in the previous here, where he says, um, but from those who seem to be something, right, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism, right? So it didn't matter to St. Paul who was coming and, and saying something contrary to what he was preaching because he knew that what he was preaching was the truth. And so he was completely unaffected by criticism. He was unaffected by, you know, the, the influence of others or who was preaching against him or anything. It didn't matter to him. All that mattered is that he was to preach the truth, okay? And here, um, in this, as I, as I said before, like, the apostles who were um, predominantly focusing on the Jews, which here he refers to as the circumcised, so the circumcised is the Jews, this was not an active issue. Like, this was not something that for the typical Jewish person was something that essentially, like, needed to, w w needed to be discussed, right? Because they were all circumcised already. And so they were focusing more on their society and what is it that they needed to do. And circumcision was not like a huge issue for them, okay? So as I said, the, the, the emphasis of the apostles to the, to the circumcised was not so much speaking about how circumcision is not necessary and all that because it didn't affect their people. But St. Paul's focus on the Gentiles, it definitely affected them. And that's why it became an issue of, of conversation, something he had to discuss um, with them. So here when St. Paul came to Jerusalem, okay, even though they were, were, were teaching different uh, groups of people, okay, and their approaches were different, and even the messages they were focusing on was different, because the people needed to, you know, to, 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 to be approached differently. And yet the Holy Spirit was the same Holy Spirit that was working in the apostles in Israel and, and St. Paul and the people who were with him. And so the apostles, when they met together, right, they recognized this, right? It says what? That they perceived the grace that had been given to me. So when the apostles in Israel saw St. Paul and heard St. Paul preaching, they recognized something in him. They recognized that what was driving him was, was actually the Holy Spirit. 
the grace of the Holy Spirit that was in him. That even though his message was not exactly like their own message, for the reasons that I said, um, they could tell that he was being led by God. And so it says what? Um, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, meaning they accepted us. right? They accepted us and they accepted us as apostles. right? Because they realized that God is the one who is preaching. God is the one who is, who is sending them just as God is the one who is sending us. And so here in these meetings, what is, again, Saint, what is the purpose? Why St. Paul? Remember, St. Paul is speaking to the Galatians. Like th what he's talking about is stuff that's already happened in the past. Why is he even talking about this? He's talking about it because he wants the Galatians to see that contrary to what the Judaizers are claiming, the message of St. Paul and the message of the rest of the apostles are one. It is not that he is teaching something contrary to the rest of the apostles and they are trying to use that as a way of bringing division between him and the Galatians, okay, in this case. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So what is this? Huh? Proof against papal supremacy. Oh, supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Can we can go with that. Peter was having a double standards. Right, double standard. Okay, so Peter was in Antioch, and St. Paul was in Antioch. Um and 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 St. Paul rebuked St. Peter, if you can imagine. Right, St. Saint, Saint Paul rebukes St. Peter, and he says, because he was to be blamed, for before certain men came from James. Who are these people who came from James? They were Gentiles? Not Gentiles. Who is James? He's the what? Bishop of what? Of Jerusalem. Right? So who lives in Jerusalem? Jews. So... So the, the people who are coming from Jerusalem, okay, they were circumcised. They were Jewish Christians. Okay, so before they came, like St. Peter and St. Paul, okay, like it says here, before they came, St. Peter was what? He was uh, eating with the Gentiles. Right now, eating with the Gentiles was not allowed in the Old Testament. Right? God, God told the people, don't eat with the Gentiles, don't go into their houses, don't interact with them, don't marry them, don't, don't deal with them at all. So the idea that you have um, this, 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 this change, you know, like the idea here is it's more than just, okay, circumcision. The idea is, are Gentiles even eligible for salvation at all? Because that was never, that was never on the table before. Like from the Jewish perspective, God always told them, don't interact with the Gentiles. Why did he tell them that? So they're not confused and they're not misled and, they're, and they don't become pagan, right? Because the Gentiles are all pagan. 
So if you interact with the Gentiles and if you intermarry with the Gentiles, then you will fall into sin. You will worship their gods. And actually, that's exactly what happened. Like, that's why the that's why God judged Israel in the Old Testament. That's why they went into exile, because they worshiped other gods. They intermarried with the Gentiles and the whole thing. Okay, so it was very understood from the Jewish perspective. Gentiles, (laughs) we don't want to get near the Gentiles or do anything with them. So the idea now that it became more like like the church began to realize that God is offering salvation to everyone, right? And, 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 and anyone who is a worshiper of God, anyone who obeys God is, is, from a spiritual perspective, a son of Abraham, right? Not the ethnic sons of Abraham, but, but the sons of Abraham in the sense that anyone who is a believer of God is the son of Abraham, right? And all the promises that in the Old Testament were directed specifically to the, to the Jews, is in the New Testament directed to the church. That just as circumcision was the act to become uh, a, a part of the assembly of God, which were the Jewish people, so in the New Testament, baptism is to become the child of God as a believer in the church. So all of the promises directed toward the people of God in the Old Testament, in Israel, those were actually promises for the church. Okay? So... But as this is kind of developing and as the church is realizing this and understanding this, there was still two sides of the issue. And so here St. Peter, when there, when there wasn't other Jews with him, he felt more comfortable to eat with the Gentiles. Okay, But when these Jews came, who were of the circumcision group, who were the Judaizer group, okay, he, he, he changed his actions. Like he said, no, I'm... I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to, you know, be with them. And you can say, well, why is that? You know, um, some 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 of the like um, some of the fathers actually say that the reason that Peter did this was not like like just directly because of like hypocrisy, but because he wanted to like he didn't want to offend. And at the same time, he wanted like he wanted to deal with things. Maybe you could say in, in like a politically correct way, like or he wanted to deal with it in a way where where like like to find some way of like bringing these people together, but maybe he felt like this was not the time to do so or the way to do so, and it was going to cause more problems. But St. Saint, Saint, um, Paul was very direct. Like he's not, he's, he's just very direct with the way that he teaches and the way that, you know, he even here is like confronting St. Peter. Um, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So, right, he's saying Barnabas was with him. Barnabas who was serving hi- with him in the Gentile areas. Also, when being confronted with these Jews and feeling this conflict, started to act like the Jews, right, even though this is not how he was before, okay? Um But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? So what is he saying? He's saying, you, St. Peter, if you for yourself feel that there's nothing wrong with eating with Gentiles, which is why you are eating with them, and, and you're understanding now that this is... There's nothing wrong with that. So you are living in the manner of a Gentile, right? Like you are, if you were living in the manner of a Jew, then you would not eat with the Gentiles at all. 
But you who are living in the manner of Gentile, in the sense that you have this liberty, right? Why are you compelling the, the, the Gentiles to live in the manner of Jews? If you are choosing to live like them, why are you asking them to live like a Jew? This was kind of his, his argument, okay? Um, someone can argue, why is it that St. Paul did not rebuke St. Peter privately? Because it says, um, I said to Peter before them all, like in the middle of uh, this big group of people, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Right? Which is a very, like to St. Peter, right? I mean, St. Peter, he, he, he walked on water with Christ. You know, like he did a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay? Like St. Peter was one of the ones who saw the transfiguration. Um, like, like, what would bring him to have, like, to say this and to say it in front of everyone, to rebuke him in front of everyone? Yes, yeah, so this was not about a personal conflict or argument between two people, right? And the and the the error here of Saint Peter was not a personal error, you know. Like, like, like if you see someone who maybe um, offends you personally, it wouldn't be appropriate to call them out in front of a large group of people. Or if you saw someone do something wrong, but it was really like a personal error, personal sin of that person. Maybe that person lied, that person did something you shouldn't have. Okay, again, like that's something you can go and deal with that person as an individual on their on your own. But the issue here had to do with the doctrine of the church. What does the church believe? Because this is going to have a huge impact on the gent. I mean, keep in mind, who is going to become the majority of the Christians? It's not the Jews. Right, the majority of the Christians became the Gentiles. The, nu the, the number of Jewish Christians actually was a small minority after all of the preaching that was done by the apostles. And had, very quickly, Christianity spread to the extent that there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. Right? So, so the idea that you are you know, teaching this wrong teaching that's going to affect the majority of the church right, is, is, of course, a huge problem. Right? So he made it very clear in a way for for actually the edification of everyone in order for them to understand why there is a conflict and why this is wrong. Because he didn't want any everyone to keep falling into this, because even Barnabas fell into it. Like every like this is an issue, right? Everyone is confused. Actually, even after this, what happened regarding St. Peter to kind of re-emphasize this point, if you know. What happened with St. Peter specifically to kind of drive this home for him? Wasn't that the vision that he had? Or yeah. Oh. What was the vision? Tell us about the vision. There was a, like, a blanket that <coughs> came down and it had all these animals on there that were unclean. And he was just like, and then there was a voice that said, you eat of it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, how can I eat of this and all of that? 
And I don't know if it was the voice or his like understanding that basically said it's not what goes in, but what comes out that is holy or unholy. Right. Right. So and, and God said to him, do not declare anything unclean. Right. That essentially God has declared to be clean. So what was the purpose of the vision? Why did God let him to see that vision in what greater context? He was calling him to preach to Cornelius. And Cornelius is what? A Gentile. A Gentile. So there was this man, Cornelius. Cornelius was a holy man, even though he was not a Jew. An uh, angel appeared to him, told him that, you know, you're a righteous man. Um, and, and God, like, God, you know, sees, like, all of the, your righteousness and all this. So he said, go call for St. Peter to come and preach to you. And then at the same time that that was happening, God allowed St. Peter to see this vision so that when the people for coming from Cornelius would come to him, he would agree to go with them. Because normally, St. Peter would have said, no, I'm not going to go into the house of a Gentile, right? Because that, that was, that's, what he, that's how he felt. So this vision communicated to St. Peter that he should go to Cornelius, okay? After that happened, St. Peter is now understanding, like much more anyway, that, okay, salvation is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews, right? The idea of eating these, these foods that was previously off limits to the Jews in the Old Testament is actually okay, right? And after the other apostles heard that St. Peter went to Cornelius, what did they say? They were all baptized. They all believed. So Cornelius and the people were baptized. But after this happened, the rest of the apostles heard that St. Peter went to Cornelius. What did they say? They understood that it's now open for the Gentiles as well. Well, initially they didn't, right? So initially they rebuked St. Peter. They said, how is it you could go to Cornelius and to go to this man who's a Gentile? But once he explained what happened and how God told him that he should go and everything that happened, then they realized, okay, salvation is available to everyone, right? So this was a process, a process of understanding this point even for the apostles themselves, right? And you see the examples of how God is teaching St. Peter teaching the apostles and so on of this. And this is another example here of kind of like this discovery. We are discovering that, that God is actually has been offering salvation to everyone. Um, uh, and, 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 and Christ died for the sins of everyone, not only for the Jews. Yes. So why is it when Jesus was on the earth that he would never interact with Gentiles? Like when he... Um, when he went to the the, the the woman that was in in uh, Syrophoenicia and he told her, I did not come except for the lost sheep of Israel. Mm -hmm. But then what happened that made Jesus or God okay with the Gentile gaining salvation? So it's not like uh, it's not like something happened to make it okay. It was always okay. But the time hadn't come yet. So for instance, by... Let's go even further back, like in the Old Testament. Why is it that God told, as we said, why is it that God told the Jews to not interact at all with the Gentiles? 
and the Gentiles were considered unclean to them. Well, the reason was is that he wanted to preserve the faith of the Je of the Jews, and that and and through them there would be the prophets. Through them, there would be all the messages of salvation. Through them, God would communicate about himself, preparing the world, okay, for the coming of the Messiah. And it was through them that the Messiah would come. Once the Messiah came, he then trained the apostles. He told them, this is the faith. And he talked to them about evangelism and preaching and holiness and all the stuff that we read about in the Gospels. And then he told them how to establish the church. Immediately after his resurrection, and he told them what? Go wait in uh, Jerusalem until the Comforter comes. Immediately after the Pentecost, after the, the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began to fulfill the mission that he had given them. So it's not that something changed in order for, for God to suddenly say, well, now the Gentiles are worthy of salvation. <coughs> it just wasn't time yet. But God, through the apostles, he was preparing them for this moment, and then they were going to be sent out into the whole world, right? So so even, even Jesus, when he was still on earth, he was kind of like, this mission is something that, really the whole mission of salvation of the world is not something that he did himself. Well, I mean, well, no. He, he fulfilled the salvation, obviously, in the, like in himself, like on the cross. But the, the preaching is not something like that's not was not his main focus. Right. Or baptizing. That was not his main focus. His main focus was to come as a sacrifice and die for our sins and to train the apostles. That was his focus. You know, you see, Jesus himself, he didn't go to anywhere like he didn't go preaching anywhere. He didn't. He stayed very locally in a small area. And that's where, where he stayed. Um, but he was training the apostles so that when the time comes, they would be the one to fulfill that mission. Okay. Two questions. Um, did, didn't the council happen before Peter's vision, though? Um, or it happened no, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, okay, so... The, the council was in eight, Acts 15. Right. Um, Peter's vision. <laughs> well, the, what did the council, the, what the council did was the council was focusing, yes, on, on those issues, um, specifically about whether circumcision was necessary and about eating meat sacrificed to idols. So I think the council happened after. His vision. Yes. Okay. And then how do we reconcile his vision and then Paul calling him out for all this and then the verse of don't eat meat if it makes your brother stumble? So th this is not, okay, in the sense that, in the sense that you're saying that people, that he could have said, um, just go ahead and be circumcised because if you're not circumcised, it's going to make them stumble. Is that what you mean? as to what we do versus what they do but then the vision that says you can eat whatever you want and then Paul calling him out saying well you eat one way and not another because I would see him Paul was you don't mingle with 
Gentiles. So I, I, I think the, the reason why that Peter did that, according to what St. Paul is saying, was not for that reason. The issue here had to do with what is necessary for salvation, right? It's not just a matter of cultural sensitivities and, you know, like, okay, we should do it for not to offend or whatnot. The message that St. Paul was trying to say is that if you want to be circumcised, it's okay. And like I said, with St. Timothy, for instance, he was circumcised because he didn't want to offend, okay? But at no point was that because there w it was believed by him that circumcision was necessary to be saved. So what St. Paul cared about is, yes, the idea of not offending others is still an important thing, but the, I the issue here is not about offense. The issue here is about what actually Christ is requiring for salvation, which is a, like a more fundamental problem. The thing you're coming up with about eating the meat sacrificed to idols, okay? In that issue, right, the church said there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. Just like here saying there's nothing wrong with circumcision, okay? But for, for if there's going to be a situation where you're eating meat sacrificed to idols is going to be a stumbling block to cause other people to sin, then don't do it, okay? Whereas here, the issue is not that you're going to cause other people to sin by not being circumcised, right? The issue is what is necessary for salvation? Is circumcision necessary for salvation or not? And so, um, but when the council met in Acts 15 and they told the Gentiles, do not eat meat sacrificed to idols, why were they saying that? Wait, is that what they said? Or they said don't eat meat with the blood in it? I'm confused now. Um, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Hold on. Let me, let me. Uh, no eating, uh, no eating meat with blood. That's uh, Acts 15's conclusion. But was uh, did they also talk about eating the meat sacrificed to idols in that chapter? I don't. Or was know that only that. in the? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, what was the reason he told them that? Well, he, because in First Corinthians chapter eight. Essentially, St. Paul says, we don't believe that idols are anything, and eating meat sacrificed to them doesn't mean anything, so it's fine. But it, that was more of a focusing on the idea that this was indeed a stumbling block for the Gentiles, because the Gentiles used to worship those idols, right? So they directed that specifically to them. Toward the Jews, he said, even though this is not a requirement for you, but for the sake of your weaker brethren, don't do it. Yes. <laughs> okay. That you just made on how, if I understood you correctly, at the end of the council they say, abstain from doing these things because the people who are new to the church used to do these things. And so they may be confused because they may see it as still being a good thing versus a bad thing. Right? So the council was addressing what? It was addressing what the Gentiles should practice. Right. So the council is not addressing the Jews specifically. Right. Right, so toward oh. the Gentiles, he's saying what? Don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Bec mm -hmm. For you, that's going to be a stumbling block. Mm -hmm. So don't do it at all. In other places, he when he was speaking to the Jews, he said, you also don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Why? Because if the, if the weaker Christians, if the Gentile Christians who um, have a sensitivity toward that, who actually have been told not to do it, right. okay, um, see you doing it, then it's going to be a stumbling block for them. 
But in no place is it saying that the actual meat itself is sin to eat. So how does that work when we like adopt things and baptize them? Like, is that not confusing for people on the outside where it's the same thing, but now we're giving it a Christian meaning or some sort of Christian use? Um, that was the only one that came. Well, I have like examples from but like sure the christmas tree <laughs> we can go with that this is something that throughout history has been seen in in different ways and it's really kind of up to the church of how they want to look at it like for instance in europe i believe there were instances where when the eastern orthodox church was like evangelizing in europe and they were evangelizing to pagans i think i can't remember if it was like the celts or something they would take like their pagan temples okay that they used to worship in and they would like rinse it all out with holy water like they would they would clean the whole temple with holy water and they would turn it into a church okay so someone can say okay that's good in the sense that i'm taking something that the people are already familiar with and i'm turning it into like a a worship place for christ and that these people are now christians but somebody else might say no like that's that's just uh, you know it's too it's it, it reminds me too much of my old life and let's just burn it down and build a church instead or something right so it's a very like subjective thing like and and, and some sometimes a person might say well because what you're really trying to answer the question is is what is what is not offensive and offense is very subjective right so the church some some periods of time where some people might decide like this one way is the better way and other people might decide one way is the better way again like the the message that saint paul is trying to teach is trying to emphasize is he calls it the law of love so the law is about love how love is manifested in a specific situation is very specific to that time period to that group of people to what they need so on so it's not about like there's one way and you just do that you know so it's a very it's very um kind of depends on the situation yeah was there another comment somewhere okay okay so um saint paul rebukes saint peter because he used to be eating with the gentiles but when the jewish people came he separated himself and he didn't want to be seen um we who are jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying if justification and salvation was by the law, okay, then everyone is a transgressor because no one can fulfill the law. Like as we said before, the Old Testament law, it was impossible to fulfill. And the purpose of the law was to make everyone realize that they, they are 
not able to meet the standard of God and that they are in need of God's mercy and salvation. That was the purpose of the law, okay, in the, in the Old Testament. So St. Peter is making, or sorry, sorry St. Paul is making this argument. If justification were by the law, then everyone would fail, right? If circumcision was necessary, why? Because it's part of the law and we're saying that, okay, um, all Christians also have to follow the law of Moses, then there is no way to be to have salvation because everyone is going to still not be able to follow. Everyone is still going to fall short of the law, so we cannot be saved. Even now having Christ, even now having the grace that came through the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it still would not be sufficient because we could still not fulfill the law. This is the, the point that St. Paul is trying to make. But if justification is by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, then redemption has come right to everyone. So if we as Christians know um, that there is no justification through the works of the law, why do we ask the Gentiles to be justified through the works of the law? Right? So he's saying as Jews, we accept the idea that we were unable to fulfill the law. And we accept the idea that Christ came as our Redeemer. And we accept the idea of the grace of God working in us. We accept this. So why then, uh, for the Gentiles, are you trying to place a burden on them that we ourselves could not, could not follow, right? It's a very similar to what, like, when, Saint, when, Saint, when uh, Christ was rebuking the Pharisees, right? He's telling them, like, you're putting a burden on the people because the, the Pharisees were actually, like, creating their own laws, like, in addition to what God had commanded the people. And they were telling the people, you must follow also our, th our laws. And Christ came and told them, they cannot follow your laws. Like you are closing the door in front, and like like to all of the people, because it's already like they can't already follow the law of the Old Testament. Now you're telling them to do even more, right? So, so the idea, the focus here of Saint Paul is saying salvation is through and justification is through Christ. It's through grace. It is not by fulfilling the law. Yes. No one fulfilled the law except Jesus Christ. But how was it that Enoch? was taken up by by the body and not die how is it that he was a righteous man and and a perfect man yet he didn't fulfill the law i don't well so first of all everyone born, even if they didn't commit any sin in their life was born with the original sin right so so even if you could have someone who lived sinless okay which I don't know if that's really like when we read about Enoch to say that he's absolutely without sin, but it says that he was righteous and he walked with God, right? But walked with God doesn't necessarily mean that he did no sin. But even for if someone theoretically were to have committed no sin, they still have the sin of original sin. So that's why every single person who died in the Old Testament went to Hades, right? There is, there is no person, regardless of how righteous they were, uh, went to paradise until the Lord Jesus Christ opened the doors of paradise to allow us in. So Jesus was born with the corrupted flesh. So, okay. The flesh that the Lord Jesus Christ took on himself is the flesh that he received from St. Mary, right? The flesh of St. Mary, because she is a human being and she was born with the original sin, okay? We don't believe what the Catholics believe, right? The Catholics, they believe in the doctrine of Immaculate Conception. Immaculate Conception believes that St. Mary was not born with original sin. 
we, we reject this. Okay, you see, every single human being is born with original sin. So St. Mary, okay, she had the corrupted flesh. And so when the Lord took the, the flesh from St. Mary, it was the corrupted flesh. And the reason that's important is because in order for us to be saved, the Lord has to have taken on the exact same status that we have. Okay. The moment that the corrupted flesh that he received from St. Mary united with the divinity, it purified it. So it's like he, he took the corrupted flesh, but in the union with the divinity, he became without any kind of corruption. Well, it's, he is still fully human, right? So the idea of that is to say that somehow he was like a hybrid. No, he's, he's not a hybrid. He has a full human nature, and he has a full divine nature. But what is the status of the human nature? The man he, let's say when, when Adam was created, okay, he is fully human. Did he have the corrupted nature or no? He did not have, right? So when God created humans... The intent was is that we would be without corruption. The corruption happened not because that is kind of innate in our nature. The corruption happened because we sinned against God, and that's why we became corrupt. So the idea of Christ having an incorrupt nature, he's still human. Because actually the very that God made was created this way, without corruption. Okay? So removing the corrupted nature is just like purifying the creation that God made, not changing its status to be something else. So did St. Mary's nature also change because she carried Jesus? Did, she, did the original sin uh, you know, leave her or, or was forgiven or whatever because she bore Jesus? No. So in Luke chapter 1, when, um, when St. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, Okay, and St. Mary is like saying this like prayer of exaltation. Okay, um, w one of the things she says, what is I rejoice in God, my savior, the one who is in my womb. Right. She's referring to him as God, my savior. So for her to be in need of salvation. Right. Means what? It means that she is still in her corruption. Right. We only need salvation because we have been corrupted. If we had no corruption, we wouldn't need salvation. So for St. Mary to need salvation, it means that she herself is corrupted. So even though she already had in her the Lord. Okay? That's the best I can do. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. Any other easier questions? <laughs> okay. Okay, this is the last verse here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. So this is a very, like, a very powerful point he's making. Right? He's saying, I have been crucified with Christ, meaning I have sacrificed my entire life for Christ. You know, even even when St. Paul was, um, well, Saul, right, before his, right at his conversion, and Saul goes to uh, Ananias, okay? Ananias 
um, when when God is speaking to him and he's saying, this man Saul, he's going to come to you and all this, and 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 Ananias is like, don't you know who this is? This is uh, this is this is the one who is persecuting your people, right? And so one of the things that God says to Ananias is, um, I will show him what he must suffer for my namesake, right? You'll say, like, like his life is going to be an example. I will show him what he will have to suffer for, for my name's sake. And the suffering of St. Paul is going to be one of the, like, the most glorious things actually about him. In that he accepted this suffering joyfully, willingly, like, giving up his entire life for the sake of the ministry all the way up until his last breath when he was martyred. Right. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, meaning I have no will apart from the will of God. Whatever it is that God's will is, this is my will. I don't argue. I don't like like, you know, we all have our own will and, and we struggle to like accept God's will. Like I have a will that I want to marry this person. I have a will that I want to live in some place. I have a will that I want to work in this place. I have a, a will of what I want to happen to me. And when we realize that maybe the will of God is different than our will, we struggle with that. Like because, you know, even when we want to please God, but yet we struggle because we have our own will and, and our will is like, you know, it's difficult to submit whenever you don't understand or where we think that our will is better than God's will. Here St. Paul is saying, I'm not even alive. My own will doesn't even exist. Everything that I think and do and feel and desire is only for the will of God to be done, right? And I'm offering myself completely in full submission and full service to God that wherever he tells me to go, I will go. I mean, if you look at the life of St. Saint, Saint Paul, like you don't ever read that he rested anywhere. You don't ever read that he took a break. You don't ever read that he did anything like for himself. And even when he speaks about himself, even honestly comparing himself with the other apostles, he's saying, you know, I have not gotten married and it's not because... I, I could not have. I chose not to, right, for the sake of the ministry. I, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, and he said to the Corinthians, um, I am not taking any money from you. Like, I am not asking you to support my ministry. I'm not asking you to support me. I'm working as a tent maker in order to support myself so that no one would say that I'm coming and taking money from you. Like, in every way, he has completely sacrificed himself for the sake of the service, Okay. So it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Meaning, why is it that I do what I do? Because I have complete faith in the Son of God. I believe in salvation. I believe in eternity. I believe in the reality of, of, of God and Jesus Christ and the mission and what he has called me for. The, the, li the life I, li I live now, completely I live in faith. For, for, this, for, for Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So he said, if, if, if salvation came through circumcision, if salvation came through observance of the law or observance of certain feast days or all the things that the Judaizers were saying, if righteousness came through this, then why is it that Christ had to die at all? You know, saying, I have completely committed myself, dedicated my, my life to follow what Christ said. Why is it that Christ even had to die at all if salvation and righteousness could come through following the law? So these Judaizers 
and the people who had this mentality, it's like they were still living in the Old Testament. Right? They didn't understand what are the implications of the incarnation. What are the implications of what is the liberty that Christ actually brought? Right? Christ brought the liberty of, of knowing that even though we are sinners and even though we fall short of what God tells us to do, and yet through Christ and with our repentance, we still have salvation, that heaven is open for us. You know, all of those people in the Old Testament that tried to follow the law as best as they could, like you said, they all went to Hades. Like, there was no, like all those circumcised people, they went to Hades. All those people who observed feast days, they went to Hades. All the people that burnt sacrifices, they went to Hades. All of the prophets, they went to Hades. All of the kings, they went to Hades. King David, Abraham, Isaac, Jason, Jacob, Joseph, like all of the famous characters, like the most righteous people that we read about, they all went to Hades. Because no amount of good work, no amount of following the law, no amount of burnt sacrifice could have ever made anyone to do anything other than go to Hades. And that's the point that St. Paul is trying to make, is that none of these things were sufficient for salvation. Only the sacrifice of Christ that brought salvation and justification through grace for us. And so we place our faith in him. That is the salvation, comes through faith in the sacrifice that Christ made and the fulfillment of the law that Christ made in, in what Christ accepted on himself and the blood that he shed on the cross. This is why we have salvation, not because we get circumcised. So for St. Paul, this was a big issue, right? Because its implications is much more than just, hey, you just need to get circumcised. It's more than that. It's not just a cultural practice. It's if you're saying that this action, this external right that has no sacramental or spiritual value in and of itself is necessary for salvation, then essentially what you're saying, that everything that Christ did was not necessary, was in vain. Like Christ did all of that, like the, the Logos incarnate, he, he, he lived on earth, he, he, he experienced sacrifice, he died on the cross, he, he resurrected from the dead, and even though I do everything he said because I'm not circumcised, then I don't have salvation. That's what you're saying, right? Which is ridiculous, right? So this is the point that St. Paul is trying to make. Any questions about this chapter? Yes. Um. The two of you were speaking before about the humanity and divinity of Christ. Um, uh, but now, now uh, at the end of this, we're talking about how uh, Christ, Christ being coming incarnate, he, he redeemed us, right? That reconciliation, that was essential because, as you were saying, um, what... what uh, all the people in the Old Testament, their inability to uh, what to to be saved, it, it was their separation from God, right? Their lack of unity with God, right? And when Christ redeems us, He gives us the ability to return to that unity. It's the same way that Christ, His humanity, and His uh, divinity are united, but we're called to be united to God um, rather than in the way that He was God, but through the grace. Of God, I, I'm I'm trying to work with all of the Christology that I've understood. But yeah, so like, like the Church Fathers speak about how the union, like the 
the hypostatic union, which is the union of the divinity of Christ to the human nature, like that union, is the same kind of union that we as human beings will have with God. When St. Peter talks about how we will be partakers of the divine nature, that we will be in union with, with, with Christ, our union with Christ will be similar to the union of the human nature with the divine nature of Christ, which is extremely like a deep thing, right? To think about that. So I don't know if that's addressing what you're asking. Okay. And, and that's ultimately what we are looking for like, like sometimes when we think about heaven, like what is heaven? Like we, we think of a place where it's like, yeah, we, we're happy and we have all the stuff we want or we don't want any stuff or like ultimately what heaven is, heaven is the place where we are in full union with Christ. That is the, the joyful thing about heaven. That's the thing that makes us desiring to be in heaven. And that's why when the Lord said the kingdom of heaven is within you, and he is saying that the kingdom of heaven does not come by observation, it's like saying, like, if we could attain, and in all of our weak human efforts to try to attain as much union with Christ as we can, even when we are on the earth, and when we partake of the Eucharist, and when we seek God and when we ask God to forgive us our sins and we seek to submit ourselves to God, what are we doing? We're essentially trying to get a taste of heaven while we are here. And that is heaven, right? Heaven is not just a, a place where we will have all of our desires. Like, like my kids always ask me, like, in heaven, are we going to have this? In heaven, are we going to want to do that? Are we going to want to eat in heaven? It's like, no, we don't want any of those things. Like, the only thing we're going to even care about at all is being in union with Christ. And I, and I thought of, like, an example, like, when we were really young kids, we had, like, toys. And maybe when we were, like, two or three years old, to us, those toys were, like, the most amazing toys. And if anyone tried to take those toys away, we would cry and we'd be upset. And if somebody asked us, can you imagine a time when you wouldn't even want this toy anymore? We'd be like, no, this is toy is the best toy. But, of course, we know that we got older and we don't even remember those toys. Like, that toy was not nothing, you know, in our, in our minds today. And that's kind of like that. Like, we, when we try to imagine what heaven is, and we think to ourselves, well, I'm going to have all the things that I want. Well, we, we won't want anything. The only thing we will want, the only thing we will desire, is the thing we will be given, which is God himself. You know, like when God was speaking to Abraham, he said, what? I am your exceedingly great reward. What was the reward? God himself was the reward. The union with God is the reward. And maybe because of our corruption, because of our sin, because of our weakness, because of our lack of faith now, we're like, you know, heaven, like it sounds great, but we're going to be bored. Heaven's great, but, uh, you know, what are we going to do there? Like we're thinking from like a very human perspective because right now our attentions are divided. We are distracted. Our heart like wants all these different things. Some things might be good, some things might be bad. But in heaven, there's only one thing we're going to want, and that is to be with Christ, to be with God, and that is what he will offer to us. And so we will be completely fulfilled, not because we have been given anything else, because that's the only thing that we want, and that's the one thing that we have there. Any other? Yes. <laughs> 
why why does our church choose to keep some of the Old Testament, um, not law but traditions? For example, like when we're baptizing kids, um, they have to stay certain days before they get baptized. Or for example, that the priesthood is only for 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 men, not for women. So those are just two examples. I'm sure there's more, but that's what I could gather. So just to clarify the first point you said, the children do not have to wait any days to be baptized, right? You can baptize a child immediately. The, the, the thing that the 40 days and the 80 days you're talking about has to do with the woman, the mother, taking communion, okay? So if she has a son, she waits 40 days before she can take communion. And if she has a daughter, she waits 80 days before she can take communion. That is what in the book of Leviticus was talking about how after a woman uh, bears a child that there is like a certain period of time where in the Old Testament she's considered to be unclean. This is, this is that law, okay? The reason that people wait now is because typically the mother wants to take communion with the child on the same day that they're baptized. So families tend to wait 40 days or 80 days for baptizing the child, but that's not necessary. Right. So the church the church tries to take things from the Old Testament with a spiritual understanding and apply it in the New Testament. There are some things that are not, right? Because the church decided that these things are completely removed, like offering sacrifices. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the sacrifice, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for all of our sins. So the idea of offering sacrifice in the New Testament doesn't make any sense. I gave the example of circumcision and baptism. Sorry, circumcision doesn't, doesn't have any spiritual value. Okay? The church decided that this idea of um, like waiting a certain amount of time before taking communion again, like it's like a way of like self-reflection. It's a way of like um, uh, kind of like repentance. Not saying that like giving birth is a sin or anything like that. But just like remembering our our sins in general and, and humanity and all of that. Now, there are some churches, like other Orthodox churches, that don't practice that. Okay, and there's actually some people in the Coptic Church that says we should get away with, with you know, remove it altogether. Right? I'm not trying to make a commentary on whether I think it should or should not be. What I'm saying is these are things that are decisions of the church based on sp like spiritual understandings of things, which is not about necessarily like what is right and wrong. Like, i give you another example. Like, for instance, we, um, uh, we eat everything, right? In the New Testament, and, and like, this, the we eat everything, you know. Um, the, like, the, 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 the miracle or the vision that St. Peter saw where God told him, here are all these animals, kill and eat. Essentially, and it says that in the scripture, it, uh, uh, purifying all foods. He's saying the purifying all foods. So, you say, okay, well, in the New Testament, there is no limit to what we can eat, whereas in the Old Testament there was all kinds of limits, you know, of what animals were considered clean and unclean and so on. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, for instance, they take the fact that one of the forbidden foods in the Old Testament is pork, okay, and so up until this day they still don't eat pork, okay, that's different than the Coptic Church. They believe from like a spiritual understanding, I'm not exactly sure like what they're understanding, like how do they justify that? I'm not exactly sure. But for, from their perspective, that's like something that they feel is spiritually beneficial for them, and so they carry that over. Does that mean that eating pork for them is a sin? I'm not saying that. You know, it's more of like um, an economy, a, a, a spiritual system that they have developed and that we also in the Coptic Church have our own system, right? 
all the things or so, so many of the things that we practice in the church are about what we believe are spiritually beneficial, not about what is right and wrong. Like, for instance, we know that Christ said we should fast. But who decided that we should fast two-thirds of the year? And which specific days? You know, again, that's something the church decided. When it comes to rights and these kinds of things, I always think of it like this. Like, you could have, let's say, two households. And in one household, the bedtime for the kids is 10 p.m. And another household, the bedtime is 9.30. Okay? Who decided that? Like, like who decided that one was right and the other was wrong? Or are they both right or are they both wrong? Like, when a, when a father, for instance, puts a rule like that for their child, they don't, like, have some kind of, like, universal book of fatherhood that they open it up and it says in there, you must set your bedtime to be this, right? And so, and so there's not a right and wrong. It's what is spiritual or what is beneficial for my kids that I think is good for them for various reasons, and different people come to different opinions. So a lot of these things are about what the church considers to be spiritually beneficial. It doesn't mean that it has to be this way, but we, as, as children of the church, we, we obey and we submit to it, um, whether we even like it or not. Like some, some things maybe we don't like, but we submit. Just as kids submit to their parents and setting a bedtime, we, we submit. It's hard questions. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for all the blessings you give us. We thank you, O God, because you have given us the law of liberty that you have allowed us, O Lord, to come to you as we are, and even with our, all our failings and our weaknesses and the things, O Lord, that we do against one another and even against you, and yet you have such mercy and patience and, and grace that you bestow upon us. We thank you, O Lord, for accepting our repentance, and we thank you, O God, for always being kind and generous to us even when we do not deserve. We know, O Lord, that through the law there is no salvation, and that we, O Lord, as a race have been far away from you, O Lord, for, for thousands and thousands of years, and yet you have redeemed us and brought us back to yourself. We thank you, O Lord, for the sacrifice. Help us not to take it for granted or to imagine that things had always been this way, that we have to look forward, O Lord, paradise, that when we depart from here, we would be with you and that we would enjoy your presence for eternity. We thank you, O Lord, for this grace and this great gift that we cannot even comprehend. Be with us, O Lord, and be with your church, and let this be a place of salvation for all people, for those, O Lord, who are far, to come close, O Lord, and to find hope and the grace that you offer to all of us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Also is your spirit.